going to be very different to what's going on in astrophysics research. Oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely not, I'm not trying to say, I'm not trying to get you to do like a broad-ended question like that. That's Thank not you. what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I, I, I want to know what your passions are, like what, what you're currently researching. Why, why did you get into it? All right, so this started, I guess, my passion for research probably started when I was a high school student. My parents were both scientists, but they were geologists. And for some reason, uh, even though they were geologists, they were quite passionate about biology. So they tried to instill that in me as well. Um, and pretty much from the very beginning, I was kind of frustrated by the fact that um, the brain doesn't really regenerate very well. Lots of other tissues in your body do. You know, your skin certainly does. That's, that's a classic sort of very easy example to use. You may scar, but you do repair um, and you get back to reasonable function pretty quickly. But um, damage a part of the brain and that's it, right? Those cells do not, the neurons anyway, do not replicate once they're differentiated into neurons. And so then the problem becomes, how do you fix something like this after, after it sustains damage? So that was pretty much the first thing that got me started. And so when I finished high school, I went into volunteer into a lab, a neuroscience lab, which happened to study the visual system. And for some reason, I, I kind of stuck with the visual system for, for my entire career since then. So the visual system is just extremely complicated. It's the biggest sense. Well, there's, it's the most important sense probably for us humans. You know, most of our brain is devoted to processing visual information. Um, you don't really realize how much, how important vision is until you lose it, honestly. Yeah. And there's very little that can be done, generally speaking. Oh. Um, cut out sorry it's uh yeah you cut out for a little bit hang on one second Did i there. cut out too i don't know yet <laughs> hang on a second okay uh, my connection's showing to be pretty good so oh well it's fine we'll keep moving okay so anyway um so i kind of used the visual system as a model for studying the problem of what to do with a damaged adult nervous system so are you are you referencing like strokes well, strokes is one aspect, right? Uh, there's yeah. a lot of other blinding diseases, a lot of them genetically determined. Um, take retinitis pigmentosa, for instance, um, that tends to affect actually kids um, as they develop. They start being able to see, but then eventually slowly lose their vision. So as teenagers, young adults, they may have lost significant portions of their, of their vision, if not gone completely blind. Mm. And then they have to live the rest of their lives blind. Right. So, so that's, that's a genetic disorder. Um, so, so earlier you said that the brain is really the only tissue that doesn't replicate once it's damaged. Why is that? One of the only, there's, there's one of a the few only. others, there's okay. a few others in the body as it turns out, but the brain is the probably the biggest one mass wise. Right. Yeah. Um, why is that? Well, that's a very philosophical question. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't know much about the brain at all. So, we well, we know remarkably well more and more. You know, that's one of the beauty of science is yeah. that there's a huge cohort of scientists studying all sorts of aspects of the brain. Um, but the brain is very complex, and it relies on a cell type that, in order to give you the functions that you have, the mental capacity, the sensory functions, the motor functions that you have, it needs to make very specific connections with hundreds of thousands of other cells of the mm -hmm. same kind. And if you mess up some of those connections, um, you mess up function immediately. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when you have damage, you know, take a stroke, for example, since that is one of the things that I work with, that will damage millions of neurons in one foul swoop. So to actually recover those functions, to just replace them, um, you would have to regenerate all those neurons. You'd have to reconnect them to the right things. Cause if you mm -hmm. don't just reconnect willy nilly, that's not going to work. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and then you have to teach them to work together. So you need three things to ha to actually happen. 
And it's almost impossible to have those three things happen. That's the, that's the end all and be all. Why is it almost impossible to have that, those three things happen? The system is too complicated. Um, and, and because the, the adult neurons have lost the capacity to regenerate, to divide, what that means is they've lost yeah. the capacity to divide. Yeah. That means that you need to either insert stem cells that have the capacity to develop into neurons and probably glial cells to go along the supporting mm-hmm. cells. Um, then they have to form the appropriate connection. And the problem with that is that the adult brain, especially no longer has the right sort of environment to form new connections easily. And for axons and processes to travel long distances, that environment occurs during development, but as the system matures and develops its mature functions, it loses that environment. Are you referencing neuroplasticity? Sure. Okay. Well, I don't know. I'm just <laughs> sure. I mean, but neuroplasticity, uh, you know, so people, people tend to kind of think of it, I think not quite correctly. Neuroplasticity okay. is simply the ability of a neural system to change. Yeah. Well, it's able to do that throughout life, mm-hmm. but the changes it's capable of during development are very different than the changes it's capable of during adulthood. Okay. And furthermore, in adulthood, when you've damaged this as part of the system. Do you see a difference in how uh, those things you're talking about is different between an ischemic stroke and a hemorrhagic stroke or, or are both this exact same damage? Ooh, no, there are, di- there are different types of damage. There are similarities, obviously, they're both strokes, but the insults that they create mm-hmm. um, in the system are somewhat different. So, yeah. in fact, we tend to see better recovery with hemorrhagic strokes than we do with ischemic. The problem is that ischemic forms a great majority of the strokes yeah. that yeah. we tend to encounter. So so why why is that such a difference? I mean, I get it from being from treating um, these type of patients in the past. Like you can see on the CAT scans, all the whole nine yards, but kind of break down why that's different and why it's actually harder for the different types of strokes. Well, an ischemic stroke, if it's allowed to have its course, uh, will it's essentially caused by the fact that there's a blood clot that lands into a vessel in the brain that supplies a, a region of the brain. And it deprives that by depriving that region of the brain of blood flow, it means you deprive it of oxygen and nutrients. Mm -hmm. And you leave that go on for long enough. And I'm talking a matter of hours that will actually, the the cells will begin to die. And that's, that's that. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Um, with a with a hemorrhagic stroke, now there are different subtypes, so I've got to be careful about about this. But, <laughs> but the difference with a hemorrhagic stroke is that you you can have, and in fact, it may start as an ischemic stroke, but then the blood vessel somehow bursts and you, mm. it bleeds into the into the matter of the brain. So the blood products, the blood that flows into the the brain matter, um, is actually as it degrades, it it, it has some toxic properties. But somehow, if you can restore, if you can restore blood flow, if you can fix the the, the break and restore blood flow, some of what it does um, when you you're releasing blood into the uh, the brain matter is that it causes pressure, mm-hmm. and and that can kill neurons also and and glial cells as well. But when, if you resolve that pressure, if you make it go away. It, it, there's a bunch of neurons in there that may, may have been damaged, but not killed outright. Mm-hmm. And those can probably come back online. Mm-hmm. And so time, it seems like is the biggest factor here because with hemorrhagic strokes, you know, it's pretty obvious. The signs and symptoms are pretty obvious whenever you have a hemorrhagic stroke. So you're not letting yourself bleed out for days on days and days on end. An ischemic right. stroke, if you have a vessel occluded, is sometimes a little bit harder to yes. And so you'll have yeah. days of this of progressive we deterioration. Hear this so often from our um, from our patients who will say, "Oh, you know, I wasn't feeling quite right. Mm-hmm. I had a headache. I just thought I'd go to bed. Yep. <laughs> See if I wake up. Well, then you've lost twenty four hours. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't know how many how long, right? Yeah. Um, and right, rather than going straight to the hospital, sometimes it's really hard to say, especially if the if the area of brain affected is relatively small. Um, and if it happens to be vision, people also are less mm-hmm. mindful of that. 
uh, they might think there's something wrong with their eyes rather than something wrong with their brains. And they may not intervene very quickly. They'll make an appointment with their eye doctor, which can take in this day and age months. <laughs> right? Don't get me started um, on that. Yeah, right. You and I both. <laughs> No, so so a lot of people, you know, know, misdiagnose. So this is misdiagnosed. Let's put Mm -hmm. it that way, both on the level of the patient and on the level of sometimes the physicians also. Um, And you're right. So so the classic signs of stroke that people tend to pay attention to are motor, yeah, weakness of an arm, weakness of a leg, facial drooping, um, not being able to speak quite properly, right? So all of those are much more motor. If the only problem is that you've got a stroke in the visual cortex and you lose part of your vision, that's oftentimes just not an alarm. It doesn't ring any alarm bells for people. So if somebody is actually having a stroke that's in the visual cortex, a part of your brain, what are some of the signs and symptoms that you'll see? They lose vision over part of their in front of them. And it may not be completely going blank. They may not lose consciousness at all. Mm-hmm. Um, they just may get a distortion of a part of the field. Okay. And it's really important. Visual cortex. Um, if you close one eye, you'll see the loss of vision of a part of the field. If you close the other eye, you should see the same loss of vision over the same side of the field. Hmm. That's kind of the classic sign of a brain stroke rather than an ocular problem because an ocular problem is specific to the eye. Yeah. It doesn't happen in the other eye. So whenever we have strokes, we know that that part of the brain is damaged. And you're saying it's really hard for the brain to redevelop this, these neurons and these tissues. We don't know why? It can't. It can't at all? It just can't. Right. There are strategies that are being developed. And this is one very intensive area of research, right, of using stem cells or one approach. Mm -hmm. Neurogenesis for a long time was also thought to be a promising avenue to try and restore some of the lost neurons. Okay. Um, whether from a stroke or from uh, any other, you know, traumatic brain injury is another big cause, right? Um, so, so they're still in development. Let's just say stem cells. Again, it's really hard. Yes, you may end up being able to transplant stem cells into that region that's being damaged, but then they have to kind of reestablish a whole environment which is, doesn't just consist of neurons. It consists of glial cells, blood mm-hmm. vessels. Um, and there's many subtypes and they have to differentiate to all of the correct subtypes. And then each <laughs> of these correct subtypes has to connect with the other cells that are in the host brain or yeah. among each other. Yeah. It's just the, the number of things that have to happen to recreate that circuitry is just mind blowing. Hmm. And the technology is not there yet. So have you heard of an enzyme called telomerase? Sure. Okay. You know, you know, telomerase, right? It's pretty, (laughs) pretty straightforward. I've asked people before and they're like, absolutely not. I have no idea what that is. Um, We know that telomerase, telomerase, it's it's really key to uh, recharging basically your cells, creating new cells in your body. Um, Is there a way to tap into that idea for brains to make new cells i'm not sure that's a weird that question would solve the problem I i'm know. not sure that that would solve the problem for a neuron i mean you can take skin cells and uh, using the current technology differentiate them into neurons but then you still have to stick them in there <laughs> and have them reconnect with the, make the right connections and then you have to teach those connections to function properly so, i mean you still yeah. have to have those things happen like hmm. I say, it's not one thing. We can do one of those things. Yeah. There's many inroads that have been made to, to achieve that. But making all of those things happen together or in the right sequence, that's not yet. We're not yet there. Let's put it that way. What's it going to take for us to get there? A lot more research. <laughs> <laughs> in the meantime, in the meantime, I think, I think we shouldn't forget about the rest of the brain that's left. Much can be done with what's left. Yeah. There's a lot of redundancy. Our, you know, our wonderful human brain is complex, complex, which 
creates its own challenges, but it also creates advantages. And the advantages are redundancy, that there are certain other parts of the brain that can take over and learn to do the functions that have been lost. That's what rehabilitation tends to really push into and recruit. Okay, so there, a lot of these rehabs, because I've heard, I've heard crazy stories of, you know, GSWs of the brain where these guys have full and complete recoveries, but it's typically not because that area of the brain is necessarily fully healed. It's because other areas of the brain are taken over. And that's, yes. that's pretty, that's the common consensus. Am I right? Right. Okay. I How does that work? That, so, you know, I, i tend to tell my students that the brain, amazing though it may be, is a really lazy organ. <laughs> it does the minimum on its own. It does the minimum necessary for survival when it's injured. The first priority is survival, control, confine the insult, um, kind of make sure that the rest of the system can still function without that part. Okay. And then that's it. That's not really conducive to recovery. Hmm. So you can make the brain do the work necessary to recover, but it, that requires training. It requires rehab. That's what rehabilitation is, yeah. is making the system practice over and over again and challenge it to do the things that it's lost the ability to do. And eventually the system will find a way and you can be a little more clever about it. You can help it by designing very specific training regimens by using pharmacology to enhance plasticity um, by using electrical brain stimulation also is another way to enhance class to enhance plasticity by putting shifting the brain into different states. Okay. Well, making, explain that a little bit. <laughs> so, so there is a technique these days of uh, called non-invasive electrical brain stimulation, which uses basically what it uses is little wet sponges with electrodes on it and you deliver a tiny current. I mean, it's so small that you can barely feel it even <laughs> on the skin. Right. And it penetrates all the way through the skull and into the brain matter in different regions. And you can apply the sponges in different places, depending on what you're interested in stimulating. And um, what that can do is it can just inject some level of excitation into the brain and it raises the level of activity to a, by a small amount. But then if you deliver, let's say, a visual stimulus on top of that, then it can allow those neurons, which would normally respond to that stimulus, but are really depressed because of the injury. You can kind of allow them to be boosted up and then detect and signal what they're detecting much more easily. So you're giving it, it energy. Kind of, you're giving it boost, a small okay. boost of activity to the system. Okay. While at the same time exposing it to visual stimuli and asking it to do the job that it used to do with respect to those visual stimuli. This is something that we've used in, in the visual system in, in our visual stroke patients, uh, but it's been used in the motor system as well in the same context. Obviously, so, the motor system is differently organized, but. Is it, is it like, it kind of sounds like it's epinephrine in a code. I mean, an epi and a code. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and you can, you can kind you can probably achieve that a similar effect with pharmacology hmm. where you're just raising the threshold of activation um, for a period of time while you're able to stimulate the system and, and asking it to, to work um, in a particular way. And it just makes it easier for it to work. But the, once you get it entrained to working and just repetitively doing that job, it's like, it's like exercise, right? You, you do exercise to strengthen certain muscles. Mm -hmm. You do the same thing with neural connections. The more you use them, the more reinforced they become. Hmm. And the more solid those connections become, if you now, don't use them enough, you, that's where you start losing those connections. They're unstable, unreliable. Now, is there, hates that. is there a way to, to do that same technique and uh, activate almost different levels higher of intelligence? I know that was the wrong English, but um, you know what I'm saying? So like stimulate the brain and then we're trying to reach, say, even new levels of consciousness or new levels of uh, IQ, right? Um, if, if giving it more energy stimulates that part of the brain, can we do that to reach new levels entirely? Interesting question. Uh, you know, how, uh, 
all that I know about this approach really lies on much simpler systems, which are, occur at the level of motor function, which is an output of the brain, and sensory function, which is just immediate input and processing of stimuli. Mm-hmm. Higher level cognitive functions, I cannot really answer to. I don't know what the answer to that question is. And my gut reaction is to say, careful what you play with. <laughs> yeah. I'm not putting two zappers in my in my ear. I'm not doing that. I mean, that's not smart. <laughs> I'm just curious. I mean, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I The, the reality is I truly don't yeah. know. It might help certain things, but whether that's good or bad for the more... <laughs> the larger picture of what we do cognitively, I, I am not going to try and even predict that. What are your thoughts on, uh, Oh, what's his face? Uh, Elon Musk's, uh, neural implant. Oh, what is he doing with that neural implant? Oh, he's, uh, he's pretty much reaching entirely new levels of brain function, consciousness, healing. It's, it's pretty insane. The Neuralink is what it's called. Okay, I have not really educated myself with respect to what he's doing with that. It's uh, it it scares me, but he says you know look it up. (laughs) Yeah, he keeps on saying how like uh, uh, this this technology is coming, so it scares me. He says, but if if this technology is coming, I'm gonna be the first one to to come out with it. Oh, he's volunteering. Oh yeah, yeah. He goes, yeah, I'll do it. Be our first guinea pig on this. All right, well, uh, power to him. I know, right? It's scary, man. But like, so all these things, like the brain, it seems like is is leading a lot of research right now because it's we don't know a whole lot about it. And uh, with what he's doing, with what AI is coming out with, with mm-hmm. just a variety of things, it seems like we're reaching levels that we've never reached before. I guess that can also be argued depending on what conspiracy theory you jump into. But um, you know, it's 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 interesting. You know, what in your opinion is the future of the brain? in the coming decades? I know that's a really crazy question, but I mean, your specialty is the brain. So I'm just kind of curious. Well, hmm. again, very philosophical question. (laughs) Uh, Could I increase our general population's understanding of brain function enough to teach them to stop messing with it as much? That would be great. But Hmm. bottom line is... (laughs) Well, I don't know. Jump on that. Um, Tell me why, yeah. why you said, why did you say that? Oh, I don't know. I think, I think that I wish people were better educated Okay. about, well, about everything, but certainly <laughs> as far as the brain is concerned about what it takes to have healthy neurological function. And, and also that we are, that we be a little more open-minded, a little more plastic about what can be done when those functions go wrong, whether that means, you know, how to deal with mental health issues. I think that that's a really, really big one, mm-hmm. actually. Yep. Um, we have, we, we're seeing an increase in pretty much every type of neurological disorder you can dream up whether it's neurodegenerative, whether it's genetic, whether it's toxicity, whether mm. it's substance abuse, mental health, the rates of stroke are going through the roof, you know, because- Why, why do you think that is? Uh, I think Technology? We are, as a species, we are just doing a lot of really bad things, both to ourselves and to our environment. Mm. And reckoning is coming. And the reckoning is coming in the form of, of how it affects our biology in addition to how it affects the yeah. rest of the planet. But certainly that's going to impact our biology and you can't impact the biology in any way without, without affecting the brain as well. So are you right. referencing like environmental toxins, things like that? I'm referencing, yes, environmental oh. toxins. The things that are, you know, we, we drink, you know, I mean, you drink your smoothie there, right? <laughs> you drink it out of what is it plastic or is it glass? Uh, is this, it? Is gla- this is glass. Good for you. All right, but, but how how long has it been that we've just drank things out of plastic, out of out of materials that have leached stuff into our food and our drinks? Yeah, yeah. There's a there's an interesting. I've heard of Dr. Schwann. She's a leading researcher in uh, like. Uh, uh, fertility and sperm counts and things like mm-hmm. that. Oh yeah. Yeah. And she, yeah, she said by 2045, the sperm counts are going to be zero for, for the entire population. I'm like, Oh my 
my gosh. But it's from that you're talking about. It's pretty scary. Yeah. And it's not an exaggeration, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so, yes. So, so you're, you're looking at it on, in terms of reproductive health, you can assume that bad things are going on in terms of our nervous central nervous system, just as much. Mm, okay. And of course that's going to impact how we react to our environment, how we control our environment. We're the ultimate controller of the environment, right? Humans. Mm. <laughs> so, it's always going to bounce back. Um, Dr. Silverstein he did a bunch of research on the visual aspect of schizophrenia and mm-hmm. I'm sure you're involved in that. And you, you knew a little bit about that. At I least. know about it. I'm, I'm not directly involved, but I'm, I was very excited when the, uh, when he joined the faculty at the university here mm-hmm. um, because it's, it's an area, it's a pretty hot area and I hope to see it develop here. We have a strong vision science program here at the university. And so this was kind of a good environment for him to come into with his psychiatry background and his interests. And mm-hmm. hopefully we'll, we can help him develop that. Well, you definitely had, you hit on a uh, hot topic with mental health in the brain. And we, there's so many things that we don't know. And one of these things, the visual aspect of schizophrenia, that's huge. So what are some things that are, are, people may not know about with the brain in regards to mental health. You know, one of these, one of those things was the visual aspect of schizophrenia. How does that even work? Like why, why don't we just jump into more of this? You know? So the reason, part of the reason why the visual system is a good, hmm, I don't know what you would call it. Kind of the canary about um, visual, uh, about central nervous system disorders broadly defined is because the, the back of the eye, the retina, the organ, that senses light and sends that information to the brain in order to be processed as vision. Um, The retina is actually derived from the brain. It is central nervous tissue. Mm. And so, but it is outside the skull and can be looked at directly. Mm. (laughs) It can be imaged. It can be studied. It can be poked and prodded. Um, it's part of the brain that you can access without going through the skull. It's an actual physical part of the brain. Exactly. (laughs) And because it is, you know, your eye has lenses, it has a cornea, Mm. it has a lens, which are transparent. It allows you to image the retina and see individual cells working, um, non-invasively. So we, so that's one of the things that the university of Rochester is famous for is having developed adaptive optics technology, uh, which is technology Mm. that was borrowed from astronomy, you know, to try and overcome the, um, optical aberrations induced by the earth's atmosphere and compensate. If you can compensate for those, you can actually see stars and other bodily struck, you know, Mm. celestial structures much more clearly. You can apply the same principles and the same, a similar instrumentation to visualizing intact cells in the eye by correcting <laughs> for the aberrations that are present in the cornea and the lens of the eye and just overcoming those wow. you know, mathematically and in other ways. Um, and so it allows you to actually see and inspect what's going on at the level of a single cell if you want to. Mm. So you it's basically just how- clear. It's clearing everything up. Uh huh. And basically you can, you can take a look at how the blood vessels are functioning in the eye. And so this is relevant for diseases that involve, you know, cardiovascular disease, for instance, you can detect it in the eye very early. Um, Diabetes, you can detect in the eye very early. Um, Alzheimer's disease. Um, Parkinson's. And in this case, schizophrenia. I mean, there are certainly abnormalities of ocular functions um, that are visible within within so this patient population too. Is medicine going to be moving towards a diagnostic approach towards looking in the eye? It should have been, and it, it has started to, but it should certainly do so much, mm. much more rapidly. So we if, have if, the tools. Yeah. So if we go into a clinic and you're trying mm-hmm. to get a, a full physical and, you know, they'll take blood tests, they'll take uh, measurements. The next thing they'll do will be look at the eye. Yeah. They should image huh. the eye. Absolutely. Wow. So why is it not being done? Because the technology involved is complicated and right now very, very expensive, yeah, but you know, like with every technology, they're moving in the direction of 
miniaturizing, mm-hmm. making it commercially feasible. So, but, you know, it takes 10, 20 years for, for these things to happen, unfortunately, but it will happen. I'm pretty convinced of that. Man, so that's, I, I just I guess I didn't realize how important the eyes, and I, I think people always think that it's separate. And that's the, that's a medicine in general or science in general. We're always separating these spheres of life, spheres of everything. And what they're all supposed to be talking to each other. And that's not, that's really not what's happening right now. Not, and, well, it's happening, but it's happening slowly and not enough, right? Okay, so it is happening. That's good. I need to know that because that's frustrating. It is happening slowly but surely. So, you, you know, you take academic medical centers like, like this one, and that is is what is going on that different departments are starting to talk to each other you know i'm in the eye institute here i have collaborators with psychiatry i have collaborators in brain and cognitive sciences over in the river campus other ones in the institute of optics okay and i have a collaborator in nephrology right mm-hmm. kidney disease mm-hmm. nephrology yeah. <laughs> so that's the way it's supposed to happen yeah and it is, it is happening. It's just, it's slow, you know. Mm-hmm. How do we get more talking to practical medicine, to diagnostic medicine? Because we're, we're seeing a lot of issues with patients where, you know, the, these specialties aren't talking to each other and then they're well, getting that's, misdiagnosed. That's separate, and Yeah. So scientists, I think, have gotten into the habit of talking to each other pretty readily across disciplines. Clinicians are... Perhaps they're talking to each other, but I tend to see them as much more siloed. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of a few steps behind where the scientists are. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that, why that is or what it will take to overcome those boundaries, but that is certainly, I think, a barrier. Mm -hmm. I think you have much more crosstalk among scientists than you Mm -hmm. do among doctors. I definitely think medical so. Doctors. And it's, and it's, it seems like the medical doctors are the one I'm not, I'm definitely not dogging on all these medical doctors. Cause there's a lot of great ones out there. Um, but like we said before, it's, it's they're because they're not talking to each other. It's almost like they're trying to keep these patients to themselves and uh, the insurance companies they are trying to code differently. It's all about coding nowadays, which is, I don't, well, you know, coding. they used to, and I think there's a saying that you, you got to follow the money. You want an explanation mm-hmm. for why things are done a certain way. You got to follow the money. And I think that that's true here. And it's, it's just, it's an inertia that we have to overcome. Yeah. So back kind of back to your eye Institute, um, you said you have patients. You say you do a lot of things with those patients. Uh, what are some things that you've learned recently that is kind of cool that you that maybe people don't know about? Uh, in terms of the actual patients that I work with, well, so one of the things that I'm hoping to be able to develop more effectively is um, is two well two things actually. One is to use augmented reality technology to be Ooh. able to enhance vision um, and perception in people who have, you know, disorders of, of vision that you can't overcome. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the bottom line. You can't cure everything. I mean, I'm pretty, I've come to that realization. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. will never claim that I can cure everything yeah. in, in terms of vision or that I can completely restore normal vision. You can't. Um, these diseases are are killing thousands and thousands of neurons. You can't exactly mm. somehow make that disappear. So so there's, there's certainly uh, technologies out there that I think could be developed. And the idea is to customize and allow people to use these technologies in their own home. So can you and give me an example on, on how that works, on how that augmented reality works practically? So there's a couple of teams are that uh, and companies that are working already to develop this. And what they do is that they have cameras, they have, you know, kind of a pair of glasses, something that looks like a pair of glasses, but they have cameras mounted on there and that are picking up the... Um, the environment and analyzing it in different ways, depending on what the patient's problem is with vision. And then there, there's a processor in, inside the frame or on the frame, which then delivers the, the glasses are actually little screens. So people can see through them, but you can also project information, whether it is enhancing part of the image to say, okay, you know, you're, you've got a pedestrian that's crossing from the right or labeling, if you're in a warehouse, labeling particular items. 
Um, so that the system itself does the labeling and then it projects the labeling um, in, on, the, on the glass in front of you. So that is, that is an, a way of enhancing what you're seeing and providing additional information to people who maybe are not able to, to capture uh, and process the entirety of the scene and the details of the scene. So when people are at a scene that you're talking about and they're not able to capture the different funk, different things, whether it be labels or mm -hmm. I, I still don't understand how, like what the main diseases for people would like that. You know what I'm saying? Oh, so, so people with macular degeneration, for okay. instance, okay. Um, or people who for some reason have, um, have really low contrast sensitivity and everything okay. looks dim. Everything looks very blurry. So, so these things can actually artificially enhance the image for them in such oh, wow. a way that, that it actually makes, uh, it reaches a certain level of performance, let's put it that way. So it's working um, out the weak muscle. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's one, one thing. You know, virtual reality as a way of, of doing therapy is also, I think, something that's probably up and coming in the field. Hmm. I don't know if that's really kind of what you were going after. No, I, I mean, I, so again, this podcast, I just want to learn. Like, I'm just curious. That's the biggest thing with all this. So that's why I kind of jump around a little bit, but I mean, that's just, that's a conversation as well. I don't really have any, like, <laughs> like whatever we're, whenever you're talking to people in general in life, um, the conversation just, you don't, you're not having like interview questions and like, you know, here's A, B and C answer these now. It's just, Hey man, like, let's talk, let's talk about your life. Let's talk about what your love, what your passions are. And that's kind of what I like doing these type of podcasts. So anyways, that's why I kind of jump around. <laughs> um, okay. technology, social media, social media eyes, you, you know, we have an entire generation who's grown up on, Facebook and uh, Instagram and all takes all the all the things that are so quick, so rapid screen movements that are seven seconds maximum each time. What does that do to the eye? And if if it's actually a physical part of the brain, what do we have? You that what have you seen in the social media realm and on how social media technology actually affects the eye and the brain? I haven't seen that much. I'm not sure that really? it would necessarily do a huge amount. It, I think it would act. Um, it would likely have a greater impact on cognitive functions, how you think, okay. how you react to information, um, how you expect information to be delivered and to appear perhaps, but that those are more cognitive functions. Hmm. You're not really seeing that. Uh, I mean, that. beyond that, I mean, the, there's the only other thing that I can think of in this context is, is the epidemic of uh, myopia. What's that? Which is happening worldwide. So there's an increased um, proportion of children in this day and age that um, have to do what have my problem. <laughs> they they grow up myopic, so they can't they can't see far away, and they need corrective lenses. In some countries, it's scary. It's we're, we're talking like ninety percent of the kids. Hmm. So in that? Asian countries, it's been it's been a real problem. Hmm. But like, why, why, certain, why certain countries? Why is, why is the golden question, which a lot of scientists are trying to answer right now? Um, you know, it's happening in Europe. It's happening in, it seems to be happening in what we call the developed countries more, but not cleanly. So there was a suggestion that maybe it's because these kids are spending too much time doing near work, whether that's looking at a screen or being in school and not being outside and looking at long distances and things far away mm -hmm. and in daylight, the exposure to sunlight mm -hmm. specifically, they're not exposed to sunlight for a sufficient number of hours a day. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the hypotheses that have been that, that are being investigated right now to figure out why it is that we're having such an epidemic. Well, it makes sense too, because I mean, a lot of Asian cultures are so intense on academics that I mean, I used to teach guitar to, to a, a, an Asian family. They're oh man, they're so awesome. But um, it was literally, you know, from from Monday through Friday, all day of school. They'd get home, they had about four hours of homework, do guitar lessons, and then they would go back to school for until like eight or eight or nine o'clock that night for looking at you know a screen or paperwork yep. right in yep. front of their face. So I wonder if that's a big one of the issues or a big so issue. So that's that's one of the thoughts, right? Yeah. But but I think we've got work to do. There's work that needs to be done still. I don't think it's the only factor. There are some people who are actually coming up with potentially genetic causes also. Hmm. 
Like what? So if you have both parents have large refractive errors in their eyes, um, the kids tend to have them too. Okay. So there's thought to Hereditary be traits, an inherited component to it. Yeah. But yeah, like I say, it's early days in this. This is kind of a big area of investigation, but you know, that, that is the one thing that comes to mind possibly related. Now, whether they're doing doing this near work with textbooks or whether they're doing it with screens, I'm not sure that that necessarily makes a difference. Interesting. I kind of would have expected it too. Hmm. Now, have you seen, um, you referenced nature and being outside. Have you seen much impact on how being outside affects uh, brain development and your eyesight? Well, so the notion is that uh, it makes it makes it better. Yeah, <laughs> it certainly prevents it. It's thought to prevent things like refractive error development. Um, Why? Well, the severity. But again, the jury is out. I would say a healthy environment makes for a healthy body, and a healthy body includes healthy visual systems. So, so in your in your opinion, when when, when we have uh, kids. K through 12, whatever, mm-hmm. in schools, in closed walls all day with very little outside time. Do you think that has a huge impact on what we're talking about? It's not a great impact, but <laughs> but the notion is that um, it doesn't, it may not take too many hours of being outside per day to actually allow for normal ocular development to occur. I mean, it may be that a couple of hours of exposure to outdoors, to the outdoors is sufficient for you to actually have reasonably good development. Now, so. I, don't, I don't know if this is in your field or not, but talking about development, outside play, visual aspects of this, um, we know that free play and unstructured free play is huge to brain development, especially on the early age. So yeah. when, we're, when we've taken that away, we've actually seen some pretty dramatic effects. What have you seen in your research, if any, on this I, topic? I don't work in this area, so I yeah. really can't answer that question, but, but I have heard the same things you have about <laughs> this. So That's fair enough. We, That's fair we enough. were pretty, we were pretty careful. So you have a young child. I, I have two. Yeah. Two. How old are they? Uh, two and almost five. Wow. Yeah. Little guys. Uh-huh. Um, Oh, girls. Uh, the little girls, my, my little girls too. And my son is uh, almost five. So awesome. So I have a daughter who's going to be 20 this year. Okay. So I'm a little bit further along than you are. Just a little. It's all right. <laughs> on this trajectory. But, you know, my, my husband and I were pretty careful about making sure that she was not structured every minute of her day, mm. that she could have some unstructured time on a regular basis. Yeah. We're also both my husband and I are pretty outdoorsy. So Same here. we, yeah, we love hiking, biking, kayaking, name All it. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool um, to see what that stuff does to the brain and how it really affects your personality in, in huge ways. For us, it's sanity. Also, I mean, <laughs> yeah. throughout yep. our life, this is, this has been kind of an, a necessary aspect of our lives is to be able mm. to get outside hug a tree or two, especially mm-hmm. if it doesn't have poison ivy on it, but that's <laughs> another thing. Um, um, and just, just be able to, to interact with the native environment that, that we have around here. We're pretty fortunate here in Rochester to have lots of that. Oh, really? See, I've never been, I've been to, uh, well, gosh, the furthest North is just regular New York, the big apple. That's all I've been. Oof. I yes, know. no. <laughs> I know. I know. Everybody's no. Like, don't we can't talk about that when it comes to where the rest of the area is because apparently the rest of the area is beautiful, like hill country type of stuff. It's gorgeous. Really? Yes. We have hills and we have lakes. That's mm. we're in the lakes region, Finger Lakes region here. So Rochester is right on the southern shore of Lake Ontario, one of the okay. big Great Lakes. Mm. But then right south of us, we have a series of Finger Lakes, which are skinny long lakes. Um, but they're absolutely beautiful. They're all freshwater and, you know, lots of fishing to be had, boating to be had. And a couple of them are, um, have been restored to their native state. So there's no houses allowed on the, on the, on the edges of them. So they're truly a beautiful environment to be, to be in. Now, do you, are you able to incorporate some of this, uh, these ideals into your teaching for your, for your students? <laughs> 
some of my ideals about balance in your life. Yeah. Yes, I try. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have well, yeah. to ask my students if I'm effective or not. But oh, that's good. Like that, that's 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 key. That's awesome. At the very What's least, you know, I try to to encourage them to pursue these other things and just to not constantly be doing nothing but work or nothing but games yep, <laughs> which yep. some of them do i mean yep. everything we do is so computerized that it's not surprising what's your phd in uh, my phd is in neuroscience okay yeah and what do you teach are you teaching neuroscience classes right now so i do um you know they i i've been teaching as part of the graduate neuroscience program for a long time i do give odd classes in um in brain and cognitive science as well. But more recently, I've kind of moved towards um, teaching of, of residents in ophthalmology. So because oh, nice. I'm in a clinical department I'm, yeah. and I'm the director of research for this department, I've taken a bit more of an active role in engaging with both our clinicians and our, and our clinicians in training. Nice. So I do some medical student teaching as well. And, and most of my teaching these days is really with respect to the graduate students who are in my lab. Some of them are PhD students and some of them are MD PhD students. What's it like getting um, grants for your department to be able to do research? <laughs> it's a big strain. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Uh, you know, and, I, I love it. Some, some aspects of it are, I just love, and some aspects of it are just, um, I hate. And that's mm -hmm. just, it's a love hate relationship when it comes, it's a necessary thing. Um, I not only, you know, so as I, as I've gotten more senior, the other thing that happens is that I not only write grants, but I review other people's grants, mm. you know, so that's, that's kind of service that we pay back to the national institutes mm -hmm. of health. Now, this seems like so backwards, seems like in medicine and science and research, not what you do, but like how, how people in your position have to be begging for money to be able to further science when there's so much more money going into all these other different realms that really don't seem like it's furthering science. It's it's a perennial frustration, yeah. but, you know, that's that's what you I don't know. I guess I've come to accept it as a reality. Mm. Okay. And I hope I can survive for yeah. long enough and that the research programs that I lead survive with me. And beyond that, you know, I'm not sure how much more I can do, but it <laughs> certainly makes it very difficult to translate um, anything that we do. And it seems this day, these days that we have more and more restrictions placed on us in, in terms of what is required to get a grant. Mm. So it's making it less fun. I have mm -hmm. to admit. It seems like you've, you've, this. you've, your perspective, perspective has changed quite a bit over the yeah. years. And you know, it sounds like maybe towards the beginning of your, of your career in research, you were very gung ho. You're going to change the world. You're yeah. going to do all this. And then you got it. Okay, and then so, reality sets in. Yeah, <laughs> man. That's so oh, sad. Cause that's, that's exactly how so many people I know, even I was, you know, I want to save the world. You want to help all these people. And then you realize that the systems that we're, we're in are, are restrictive, hardcore. Ah, oh, it's frustrating, man. Hmm. That's right. reality. I know. Push on nonetheless. As we wrap up, um, if you were, say, advisor to the president, you know, what are some of the what are the top three things that you would say you want to do? I would say, do not cut funding for science. Mm -hmm. Continue to fund science very broadly you never know where your next discovery is truly going to come from. You, I have a lot of basic scientists who complain after a while and say, I don't know what, you know, what I've done my whole career. I don't know what it's ever going to be used for or by him. I'm like, that's fine. That's fine because it may not be used for the next 30 years, but then you just never know when that piece of information that you spend so long to rigorously establish is actually going to be used for something that revolutionizes how we live. Mm. You just never know. So I think you have to be able to support basic science very broadly okay. in all of its craziness and yeah. esoteric sort of areas. So that's one. Give me two more. Um, teach people how to listen to each other without 
with respect. Mm. I, I feel like that we've lost that. If I was to um, ask a president to do anything at a sort of a national level, um, I would try and do something to fix the discourse mm. and the level of civility and attitude that people have towards other people. What do you think has caused that? I think people have forgotten how how to have different opinions mm. with, while still maintaining respect for the mm. for the fact that another person can have a different opinion. Mm. And the third thing I would do is is to reinforce the notion that people should be better educated and stop listening to just rumors, check your facts. Yeah. That was one of the main things in one of my humanities in my undergrad. That's what it was. What we do. They taught us, you know, what is the three sources, of course, but though, though those three sources um, may say different things, where they meet in the middle is what you can rely on. And that's kind of Sometimes. what. Okay. Right. <laughs> I mean, Sometimes, it has a yeah. general, general That's In a this good day fact. and age, I don't know that I believe that anymore because okay. I think people rely on opinion and hearsay minus the facts. I mean, the facts are the last things to get pulled out and dug through. Well, that's what I'm saying. Right. Well, I mean, you have an opinion on something, but you're also an expert in your field. So I can, I can hear your opinion on a certain topic where you, I know that you're, you're a source is based in a lot of facts in your research. And then I go go to another neuroscience or ophthalmologist and say, Hey, what do you think about this? They may have a different perspective, but where you two meet in the middle is typically what I can draw my conclusion off of. That's all I'm trying to say. No, that, that makes sense to me. I'm not saying three different crazy people out in the world just give me opinions on Facebook. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get reputable sources. Okay. In that case, I would agree with you. Okay. All right. Yeah. In that case, I would agree with you, but it's, it's just, uh, it's a little scary how, how disinformation has just taken on a life of its own. It seems recently. Um, and I think that, that social media has played a part because it just, diffuses that information so much more quickly and so much more extensively than our old means of communication used to. Interesting. And, yeah. you know, I think the the rush to get information or opinions out there out tends to outpace the, the pace by which facts get dug up and then distributed. Rephrase that. I want to hear that again. I think that the... <laughs> she rolls her eyes. <laughs> No, I'm trying to think about how, how best to rephrase that. Um, my feeling is that opinions, because of social media, it's very easy to get somebody's opinion out there very broadly distributed very quickly. Mm. And it sometimes it t- when you're trying to dig facts up, that takes longer. And then it's a multiple steps rather than just blurting out whatever you think. Mm. So, so it takes the pace at which these two things um, occur is, is very different. And that's probably contributed to the general state of, of functional dysfunction in our communities. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely the, the art of the conversation has been lost. And that's also one of the things I like being able to talk to you about. I mean, some of the, some of the things I'm like, okay, I'll, 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 I'm just kind of curious about that. And, uh, I can also have a conversation with you and be totally cool. And <laughs> I, I want to grow that inside of me uh, as I grow older and as I further, hopefully one day in my career in research and kind of see what happens. So really appreciate make sure you. you te- make sure you teach your kids how to do that too. Having that, that, uh, that's my wish for you. <laughs> the art of the conversations that we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're uh, slowly but surely doing it. I mean, I'm teaching them chess right now, so hopefully the strategy and game th- game theory will help with that. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay, I know, right? good. <laughs> well, Dr. Huxon, I really appreciate you coming to the show. I know we kind of jumped around, but man, it was fun. This is this is some, this is is sometimes how conversations go, and that's totally yep. fine. I it like it. It was a pleasure, Caleb. <laughs> you have a good day. All right, you too. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.